On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we bring on Spencer Feldman to discuss histamines, histamine intolerance, and so much more. Here we go. But indeed, mast cells, which are one of the cells that uh, mediate uh, allergic responses, can react. We now know they've done lab tests to an electromagnetic signal. So yes, you could become allergic to electricity, quote unquote. You could be allergic to radio waves. And, and that's a tricky one because I can avoid peanuts if I'm allergic to peanuts. If you're allergic to electromagnetic signals, boy, that's a, that's a tough one in the 21st century. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you so much for pressing play today. I'm super grateful you chose us. Spencer Feldman is, I describe, the smartest health practitioner you probably never heard of before. And he came on the show today, and oh boy, did he give us a masterclass. This is deep. You're going to put on your science thinking cap today and take a lot of notes. For the first time ever on the Keto Camp Podcast, we take a deep dive into histamines, histamine intolerances, and why this might be the root cause of why you're experiencing symptoms. What exactly are histamines? How do they develop? We talk about the problem with storing food in the fridge. We talk about things you can do to calm down mast cell activation, the role between EMFs and being allergic to actual electricity. We talk about foods that create higher histamines in the body, like kombucha, stevia, fermented foods, et cetera. He's going to give you a list and what to do about it in terms of supplementation and some practical tips you could incorporate. We also discuss the role of oxytocin, and uh, he's going to share how soybean oil damages oxytocin and the role of oxytocin, the, the love hormone, if you want to call it that. We're going to discuss vegetables and the role of plant toxins and anti-nutrients. He's going to share some of his favorite lower anti-nutrient vegetables versus the ones that are worse out there. We'll discuss the benefits of carnivore and the drawback of carnivore and also how to cook meat and why you don't want to overcook your meat. Something that I was surprised is that Spencer eats raw meat and raw chicken. I know. I, I had to pause for a second. You're going to hear that part of the conversation. We'll talk about the role of glutamate and foods high in glutamate, pistachios, Parmesan cheese, and how that those foods actually create symptoms in a lot of people. We'll discuss simple things to do to your meat to break down the problems with it if you suspect you're not handling meat well. The best oils to cook your meat in and how to help your cells function better with proteolytics and other things we can do. This is a masterclass on health. You're going to love today's conversation. If you want to learn more about the products that Spencer has created, you can find that over at remedylink.com. We'll put a link down below. And if you want to watch the video version of today's interview and all Keto Camp podcast interviews, that could be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash keto camp. Before I bring on Spencer, I want to take a minute to acknowledge today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from John Robertson, 20 titled, Great Information. I listen to a lot of podcasts as we don't watch TV, and I have over an hour drive each way to work, and I don't listen to the radio. Keto Camp is the most informative podcast, and Keto Flex is a must-read. Thank you, John Robertson. Thanks for listening to the show on your way to work, and good job not having a TV. I think that is phenomenal. And I appreciate you listening to the show and reading the book, Keto Flex. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have not left the Keto Camp podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so on whatever platform you're listening from. And maybe I'll read your review on the next episode. All right, here's Spencer Feldman. Spencer Feldman 
is the CEO of Remedy Link. He's a multiple patent holder and has been designing and manufacturing detoxification products for over 20 years. His groundbreaking work creating detox suppositories spawned an entire industry in the alternative health world. And I urge you to listen to today's episode. Here is Spencer. Spencer Feldman, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. So Spencer has been on our live training calls. We do, me and Dr. Pompa, Dr. Mindy Pels, we're in a group together with other incredible doctors and practitioners. And you've been coming into our group for years. Dr. Pompa is good friends with you, and he's been bringing you into our group for years to train us on certain topics. And every time you come on, I just am taking so many notes. I have like files of notes just from your, your sessions with us. I think you've been on maybe three or four times before. And we're going to dive deep into some of those notes today. But I, I say that because I believe you're one of the s- smartest, most well-researched, uh, brilliant guys out there that my audience has probably never heard of. And I say that with total respect. And I'm so grateful to bring you to my audience today. So thank you for being here first and foremost, Spencer. Oh, those are very kind words coming. Ben, thanks. Yeah, and please, you know, share with our audience before we get into the topics here. What transpired? What were some of the the roads that led you down this path towards health and, and teaching the things that you teach? So, I have a, a kind of similar origin story to a lot of people in our field, which was, you know, I, I didn't have a very healthy childhood. You know, um, lots of chronic allergies, lots of fatigue, acne, yada yada. And the traditional medical establishment really didn't answer questions. They were, it was more symptom-based and then created side effects. Uh, my hands shook too much to go in, uh, to become an emergency room surgeon, which you know was my ideal at that point in time, because uh, you know my nervous system was shot. So I ended up going into research. And what I found was I had, a, the, my, the way my mind works uh, and the patterns that I see allow me to fit into uh, a niche in the medical establishment that seemed to be vacant in a lot of ways. And basically, the way the the industry works is we've got people who get sick. We were all challenged both by our genetics and our environment and our, and our choices we make. But the people that get sick in particular ways aren't really being helped in the traditional manner because let's say someone doesn't methylate properly or doesn't burn carbohydrates or got something wrong with their Krebs cycle or or maybe they've got some kind of toxin in them that's interfering with some kind of pathway. Um, it doesn't fit into the diagnostic model for the way the modern medical system is established. If you have a gunshot wound or a car crash or you need an IV of really strong antibiotics to avoid going into septic shock, you definitely want to be in a hospital. But as you know, for the, the chronic slow kind of the mind's trying to go, the energy's going, the sex drive is going, the mood is getting worse. For that kind of stuff that is just aging and, and kind of slowly you know, degrading, there aren't that many great models out there. And so what I started to do was figure out, okay, what, what's really going wrong with the way the human body works relative to the 21st century? Because you know, I have a great respect for the body work, the way it works, and it's not really a adapted yet to the challenges that we're exposed to. In two or 300 years, sure, you know, our liver will be twice as large and, you know, we'll be, uh, have amazing detox pathways that our grandparents didn't need to have. But we're in this intermediary phase where our bodies evolutionarily have not caught up with the shifts in our environment. And so I'm trying to bridge the gap with science saying, okay, here's some of the ways in which we can, living in this century and perhaps the next, give our body some advantage to dealing with what it's been exposed to now. You know, it's interesting because I'm thinking about, you know, our livers doubling in size and these uh, different variables that are over time going to take place for sure. I'm thinking of like our next future generations with huge thumbs from using their phone all day long and what we're going to look like in about a hundred years or so. But you're right. When we look at conventional allopathic medicine, when somebody kills you quickly, they call it murder. When somebody kills you very slowly, they call it medicine, right? And that's exactly what it is. It's unfortunately a slow death in a sick care factory. So you took uh, matters into your own hands and you ended up healing your body. And now the mission is to help other people do the same thing, to help them identify the interference and remove it. Is that fairly stated? Yeah. And I couldn't have done this 30 years ago. It's only with the advent of the internet where 
you know, so you have all of these researchers in multiple parts of the world and across multiple languages working on very small parts of the equation saying, hey, I, I figured out this very small piece over here and this small piece over there. And so what I've been doing is I've been trying to put all those pieces together and make products available based on the research that's available. Uh, you know, the, the challenge is uh, not for me, it's it's not patentable usually. So the big medical establishments don't want to want to promote it because um, they'll put all the R&D into coming up with a, a protocol and then they'll get copied. So there's this gap, as I was talking about in medicine, where if it's not patentable, it doesn't, you know, research doesn't go into it. Or let me rephrase it, the manufacturing base doesn't come. The research is there, but the manufacturing base won't touch it unless there's a profit motive. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Well, let's let's not leave all of these these clinical gems just laying about the research environment. Let's bring them together and see if we can and um, find some utility for our clients. Yeah, absolutely. And you've done a good job with that remedy link and the products you've created. We're going to talk more about that. Out of those research gems, you stated that there are many out there, and you've done a lot of research. What is the first thing that comes to mind when I ask this question, like what's the most surprising research gem you've come across? It might have to do with histamine. So yeah, uh, and that's kind of new for me. I had always understood that when someone has an allergy to something, you know, it's the sniffles, uh, maybe they get an upset stomach, maybe they get a skin rash, right? And it can be a little tricky because you could have an immediate allergic reaction and that's easy. Hey, I, I just ate some peanut butter and it's hard to breathe. Or you can have a delayed reaction, which is not a classic allergy. Uh, it's an intolerance, but I call it an allergy because it's a reaction, but it happens like three hours later. And so I, you may not be able to connect the fact that some, you know, you had a tomato in your sandwich and then your arthritis acted up because you have an, you have an intolerance to nightshades. Can it, can, can it happen even longer than that? Like, can it be a couple of days that they could get a, a symptom? I suppose that's possible, although I, I think that the intolerance uh, immune uh, triggering typically is three to four hours. Um, so when I started researching, I had a client who was um, mold sensitive. And so I said, oh, okay, I need to you know, clean the mold out of them, but this is also part has to do with their immune system and how they're reacting to it. And so as I'm studying histamine, I find out that there's actually four different histamine receptors. H1, H2, H3, and H4. And they're, you know, the common ones, you know, we'd expect, right, in your skin, right, that's itchy skin, or in the sinuses, or in, maybe in the lungs, that'd be like an asthmatic kind of reaction, or in the gut. But the histamine receptors are actually throughout the entire body. They're everywhere. They're in the nervous system, the brain, the bladder, the testes, the process. I mean, every tissue you can imagine has histamine receptors. And so I started realizing, well, wait a minute. This is implying that a lot of problems might be caused by allergies. And, and again, I'm going to add in intolerances under the allergy rubric for that for this purpose. And so it turns out, for instance, interstitial cystitis is like a bladder allergy. Plaque in the arteries has an allergic component to the development of the plaque, right? Uh, neurologic conditions are, you know, you know, you've heard of people say that they've got brain fog. That is a quasi-allergic reaction in the brain. So I said, well, wait a minute. So maybe a number of these clients that we're seeing that nobody can figure out are actually allergies to things that people don't know. So I said, okay, so what do we need to do? All right, so step one, we need to minimize the allergen, right? And that could be food. So you would do both an allergy intolerance, an allergy and intolerance food test to determine that there's foods that you're allergic to. Which are, which are your favorite ones? Like uh, looking at... Um... IgA, IgG, which ones would you want to look at? We have to do, we have to do all of them, okay. right? Because you have to do the intolerances and the allergies. You have to get both sets. And so, you know, we've got that. And then, but also 25% of homes have toxic mold in them. And you, you certainly want to avoid exposure, but it's going to be to some degree impossible. And also people can be allergic to electromagnetic signals. And at first I thought, well, that that's not possible. But indeed, mast cells, which are one of the cells that uh, mediate uh, allergic responses, can react, we now know they've done lab tests to an electromagnetic signal. So yes, you could become allergic to electricity, quote unquote. You could be allergic to radio waves. Wow. And, and that's a tricky one because I can avoid peanuts if I'm allergic to peanuts. If you're right. allergic to electromagnetic signals, boy, that's a, that's a tough one in the 21st century. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Imagine somebody who's allergic to EMFs and they're sleeping in a bed in a 
an apartment building and their neighbor has their router right by behind the wall by their bed and they're wondering why they feel so awful. Right. And it's literally, and it's not figuratively an, an allergic reaction. It's literally an allergic reaction. It's the movement of calcium. It's the activation of the mast cells. It's the release of histamine. So it, the, the mast cells can learn to recognize signals, energetic signals, electromagnetic signals, just like physical uh, stimuli. So I said, okay, well, the first thing is we have to minimize, right? So you know, for a client like that, you could use um, RF reflective paint in the bedroom and, and, and things like this. The next thing we want to do is we want to try to teach the immune system, hey, calm down, calm down. This is a software glitch going on here. You don't need to react to whatever it is in your environment you're reacting to. Now, part of that is you were supposed to get that through the breast milk and the placenta uh, and the mother in the environment that the mother is in is supposed to then teach the baby in utero, not to react, this is part of the environment, but if the microbiome is off, we can get to that. And if they weren't breastfed properly or so forth and so on, it can pass down the generation. Or if the mother, say, was taking antihistamines during, during gestation, that'll throw the whole uh, allergic uh, information um, transfer and download off on the, to the kid. What about C-section babies? Would that also be the case? Yeah, because you're not going to get the oxytocin, proper oxytocin delivery. You're not going to get the, the bacteria through the vaginal canal. and you know, the mother is now heavily traumatized and, and full of cortisol and pain. And so, the, you know, are they even going to be getting colostrum? That's a whole other nine yards and the huge numbers of people getting C-sections. So the next thing we need to do is try to educate the immune system a little bit. And rosemary extract actually will selectively create apoptosis in the parts of the immune system that are recognizing allergens. So that's kind of a long-term like, hey, let's try to kind of do a memory wipe of that particular software glitch. The next thing I wanted to do was to stabilize the mast cells themselves. And, you know, quercetin is one of the many things you can do that. And then the other thing you want to do is you want to minimize the conversion of histidine to histamine. Dietary histidine, the amino acid, will turn into histamine. And so there are ways to minimize that conversion. You want to minimize histamine um, foods, like all the fermented foods, because that's just increasing your histamine load. And then we actually do uh, diamine oxidase, which is an enzyme that breaks down histamine. Now, you know that a lot of people, it's common now to find out that they are uh, they have methylation defects. Well, I think what we're going to find is a lot of people, when we start looking for it, actually have a histamine enzyme, degradation enzyme defects as well. So we made a product called Testament that combines all these things. And what I would pose to the client, to people is to say, if you've got a condition that you've tried everything and nothing seems to fix it, it might actually be an allergy to something open up the, your, your, your thought process to past itchy skin and sneezing, anything, any body part, any body part can have an allergy. This is super fascinating. I want to unpack a few things here. So step number one, minimize the allergy, go get a test for an allergy or an intolerance and figure out which are the ones that are mostly affecting you in your body. Number two, teach the immune system to calm down. You could do that with things like rosemary extract. You can talk about quercetin. There's a few other things that you have in a product that you have coming out. We'll talk about in a second. And then the third step, minimize the conversion of, you said histidine to histamine. Is that what you said? Right. So you have a native capacity to break down histamine. There's an intracellular and an extracellular set of enzymes that break down histamine. So we, we want to minimize the histamine. So for instance, for one thing is you, you want to kind of avoid high histamine foods. Now, um, that would be anything fermented. So that's going to be sauerkraut, kimchi, um, even things like kombucha will, will be problematic. Aged cheeses maybe too? Yeah. So you can look up histamine foods and then there's also histamine releasing foods, right? So if you take a lot of citrus, it doesn't have histamine, but it causes the mast cells to release it. Now you can do ferments, but you have to do ferments with histamine reducing bacteria and they're versus than ones you would normally find. So you have to be very specific with what probiotics you use in a histamine client. So you want to kind of lower the histamine bucket level, right? As an example, fish is unfortunately something you're going to have to usually stay away from. And the reason is because there's, there's histamine producing bacteria in the gills of all fish. And when it, it's caught, unless you caught it personally and you filleted it and killed it and ate it, and killed it, filleted it and ate it right then and there, it's on a long line and you know, in a giant commercial vessel, and then it takes two hours before they pull the line and an hour before they get to freeze it, the bacteria colonizes the fish and it's making histamine from day one. Interesting. Okay. What about, because here's something I noticed. Anytime I cook food, let's say I cooked some eggs or some steak and eggs or something that's really high quality meal and I have some leftovers 
and I put it into the refrigerator and the next day I eat it, I don't feel that great. What's going on there? Well, I mean, that could be a number of things, but certainly histamine is one of them. And you can't taste histamine and you can't cook it out. So as a rule, if you are histamine resistant or reactive, at least until you get it under control, that's it for the leftovers because the bacteria has already started growing you know, immediately in there. Is there anything we can do like putting it in the fridge right away instead of leaving it on the counter or reheating it or not reheating it? Is there anything we can do to lower that limit without taking supplements? Well, so when you put it in the fridge, you're slowing time, right? Temperature is time. So you're, you're slowing the conversion of the histamine to bacteria. So, but it's going to take some time to cool down. And in that time, the bacteria that's on there is making histamine. So, I mean, if you wanted to do that, you would have to basically put it, you cook it and put it immediately in the fridge, which you're not eating. Maybe spread it out rather than have it be a big lump or whatever it is so that there's more surface area to cool faster. That might work. Okay, interesting. All right, so... Leftover food, problematic if you're sensitive. Or anything else we should pay attention to in terms of some things that are problematic in our environment with histamines? Um, I think that's a good start. Okay. That's a good start. And supplementation, you mentioned rosemary extract, quercetin. I saw on your website, I was looking on there earlier today, remedylink.com, a product you have coming out. I don't believe it's out yet, called Tessimit Histamine Detox. Could you speak about that? Yeah, right. So it's, it's hitting each of those points, right? We're stopping the conversion of histidine to histamine. We're stabilizing the mast cell. We are increasing the diamine oxidase, which is one of the enzymes that breaks us up down. It's liposomal, so it goes into the bloodstream. We are trying to re-educate the immune system. You know, one aspect of this mast cell disorder is, is actually one of the things you're going to find in uh, long-term COVID is a mast cell. So if someone's got long-term COVID, they, they should be thinking mast cell uh, in terms of that. We could talk about long-term COVID as well uh, if you want. Yeah, well, it makes me think because I know part of long-term COVID is the cellular danger response, the mitochondria lowering energy production because of the threats it's perceived. What's the connection between that, the mitochondria, and histamines, and what's what's the relationship there? Okay, so what we're looking with uh, long-term COVID is something called an IgG4 disease. Uh, now, this used to be very rare, it's a rare kind of condition, uh, and, but it's not rare anymore because a lot of people are suffering from the vaccine. So what happens is number one, the DNA editing uh, makes spike proteins. And the spike proteins are triggering aminoglobulin G4. And what that does is it causes uh, tissue to swell, the, the neutrophils. All right, so they're coming in and then you end up getting fibrosis. So think about fibrosis as like, um, like trench warfare. They're like, okay, the invading army is coming. You try to fight it, they're too powerful. So you lay trenches, you put, and, and you're like, okay, well, you're not coming any farther. That's what fibrosis is. The body's trying to wall off an infected area or an area it thinks is infected. So you're getting this fibrosis response with long-term COVID because the body thinks from the spike proteins that there's an infection going on and it's trying to block off tissue, but it, it's, what's it going to do? Block off all of its tissue everywhere? So you see the challenge. It's also, it's pretty hard to diagnose with blood work. You know, typically you have to do this by biopsy. The typical drug would be glutocorticoids, but you know, you can't do that long-term. So what you're really going to need to do uh, to, to add in if, you're, if you've got this is what I think is what you want is a proteolytic. Um, there are actually some protein digesting enzymes that will break down spike protein and break down fibrin. You can do both. Um, we're looking at natokinase, serapeptase, lambrokinase, pancreatin. We have a product coming out in about two months that will have all four of those liposomally. And the idea is, look, if you've taken the vaccine and you now think that that's, you're suffering from the, see, there's no off switch for the vaccine, right? The vaccine uh, edits the DNA to make spike proteins, but never, you know, normally the DNA has off and on uh, aspects to it. Hey, make this protein under these conditions and then stop uh, under this condition, right? All the proteins being made by the body are made for a particular point in time and for a particular thing. When we, or when people got gene edited, to make spike proteins, there was no off switch. It wasn't like make it for this point in time and stop. It's just like make it. Well, now they're making it and they don't stop. And so now the body's responding with this IgG4 response. So until we master how to go in there and possibly re-edit it, which you know I don't know we're gonna see anytime soon, I think the second best solution is just to break down the spike protein as fast as it's being produced, which is proteolytics. And so those enzymes, because um, there's only so much um, capacity our, our lysosomes have for breaking down proteins and fats. You know, the lysosomes are these little, and, and we'll talk about that in keto, the lysosomes are these little uh, organelles inside the cells 
and they break down proteins and fats and things and act as a recycling center. But um, there are some things they can't break down, so they store them. So there's this slow shift in the lysosomes as we age from a, re a fully functioning recycling center in youth to a landfill as we get older. And the more the lysosome acts as a landfill, the less it can act as a recycling center until it's a completely a landfill. And then the final manifestation is that the landfill closes. And they say, that's it, that's all I can take. And now the lysosomes stop. And then you see aging take off like mad. That's why you see people in their 50s and 60s suddenly really start to age, right? Things really start to, you look, you know, you know, someone looks at their skin, look at themselves at 40 and 50, and then 50 and 60 and 60 and 70. Why is it logarithmically accelerating in terms of age? It's because the, the lysosomes, I believe, finally gave up the ghost and the catastrophic garbage theory of aging, just this accumulation of junk that was supposed to be recycled and burnt up, is just you can't. So you have to go in then and say, okay. What I need to clean out the lysosomes, and I need to support the protein, the, the digestion of these row proteins, like fibrin, like spike protein. So you're saying the spike protein creates more congestion. Eventually, the lysosomes can't keep up, and it'll cause you to age faster. Essentially, is what you just said. Well, that, that's one outcome of it. You know, the more aggressive outcome is it's causing. All right, hang on a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a picture up for you. Right, so you can see here all the different places in the body uh, where you can get uh, the IgG4 symptoms, right? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's in the brain, it's in the saliva glands, the thyroid, the lungs, the bile, the kidneys, the, the eyeballs, the pancreas, the aorta. Uh, this, it's all over the place, right? So if you have never felt well since the vaccine, this may be it. What if, what if you never got the vaccine, but your significant other did? Uh, I don't know whether or not the, the mRNA will transfer from one person to another. I'm, I feel like the spike protein could through bodily fluids. I don't know whether mRNA would. My guess is it wouldn't, but I wouldn't put money on that. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part, this may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and... $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal, and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best-tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, 
customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy-tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. So the most frequent here is going to be the salivary glands, the pancreas, and a a few others versus more occasional and infrequent is what I'm looking at. So if you're watching on YouTube, you could see this. If you're listening on the podcast, you could go to youtube.com slash keto camp, Spencer Feldman interview, and you could watch what we're looking at here. But continue, Spencer. Right. Well, this is for the classic IgG4 uh, diseases. This isn't necessarily for long-term COVID. It just looks like long-term COVID is being caused partially by IgG4. Um, so this is just a bit of data that we have. I wouldn't be surprised if IgG4 is showing up in other ways from long-term COVID. I mean, now let me show you one other photo here. Right, so you can see that it actually affects different people in different ways, right? Men, women, if you're white, if you're Asian, if you're how old you are. And so different body parts are gonna get affected differently in different people. And that's what makes it difficult, right? If you say, hey, someone has diabetes, well, 10 people with diabetes are probably gonna have roughly the same experience, right? You know, uh, their blood sugar is gonna go up. Um, they're gonna have kidney and eye issues and extremity issues and, and that. But when you have an IgG4 uh, issue go on, it's another one of these things where, unless you really know IgG4, it would be very easy not to make the connection that that's what's going on with someone's sickness because it's so variable among different phenotypes of people. That's interesting. All right. So you mentioned one of the things we can do is take proteolytics and you have a supplement coming out with a few things we can do. What are other things we can do to to limit the damage here? I am sure that there is a lot of great protocols out there. That is initially what my first thoughts are. You know, What about the ant extract and regenamin? So the Regenamin product was aimed at people who are about to take a vaccine and are concerned with or wanting to upregulate their body's ability to protect their DNA. I think once someone has already taken the vaccine and it's a couple of months in, at this point in time, I don't know that we have, I think at this point we're better off putting our energy into dealing with the production of the spike protein rather than necessarily trying to upregulate the body's ability to pull that genetic information out now. Understood. All right, before we get to the next topic, I, I want to just close the loop here with the histamine conversation. So let's say somebody has determined that that is their problem. The reason they don't feel well, even though they're eating what they believe to be clean, they're doing intermittent fasting, they're exercising, but they still have symptoms. They listen to this podcast and they're like, oh my gosh, I think that is me. I have a histamine sensitivity. They test, they're eating foods that they're sensitive to or have some sort of reaction to. And they start doing the things that you suggested. Do they have to do that forever? What are some things they can do so that they could eventually maybe bring back those foods or should they even ever bring back those foods and have a better response to them? So the good news is if you have a histamine problem and you change your environment, your diet, do a little bit of supplementation, you'll see huge changes relatively quickly. Now, we're not talking about this, the structural damage that's been caused by the inflammation, but the, but the actual histamine response might be gone the next day. Once, if you have enough, take some of these histamine reducing enzymes in, it should be relatively quick. As to how long you want, want to be off of it, everyone's going to be different. You might find that, you know, you want to do like a clearing, a histamine clearing for like a month, and then slowly add in some of the foods and things that you're mildly respond, reactive to. Uh, and you might find, oh, well, you know, I mean, because it's not like you are or are not reactive to foods. It's on a spectrum. So you might find that you're wildly allergic to egg yolks, mildly allergic to figs, a little bit allergic to salmon, okay? So start by adding in the things that you, you like that you're mildly allergic to. See if taking testament or something, you know, something that breaks down histamine allows you that kind of that kind of uh, flexibility. So that you know, the idea is to be able to go to a restaurant and enjoy a fine meal of, of mostly whatever you like. Will everyone be able to do that? No. There are some people who, you know, probably ought to just really stay away from certain things that they're wildly allergic to. Uh, so it's going to be an experimental process, finding what you can and can't get away with, and and what you are or are not willing to live with in order for the experience of the of the allergen, how much do you want to have that dinner versus 
how bad is our reaction? And that's a personal, personal choice. Yeah, absolutely. Are there high histamines in art, um, not artificial sweeteners, but sugar replacements like stevia, monk fruit, or sugar alcohols? Or should those also be monitored? I don't know that there's a correlation between those and histamine. Okay. I, I, was, I, I don't know either. I was just curious. Okay. So we're not sure about that. Uh, what about meat? Are there any histamines in meat or is meat pretty good? It's what happens to the meat, right? Yeah, like so, the fish, right? Like right fish or, or, you know, you leave meat out in the, you know, in the fridge, it's going to develop histamine. So, or if you ferment it. Uh, but meat's a very interesting topic. And I know that uh, you have a lot of um, carnivore clients. I mean, uh, that's something we could definitely talk about. Yeah, that was the next topic. That's why I wanted to lead into that. Because first of all, in my notes I have from you, leaky gut equals leaky brain equals leaky membranes. And one of the major contributors to leaky gut, obviously, are these plant toxins, anti-nutrients, oxalic acid, lectins, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So let's explain why they're bad for us and then why carnivore could be a great approach, but why maybe too much carnivore could be an issue. So let's start with the plant toxin conversation that'll lead us to carnivore. Sure. So with the exception of fruit, plants don't want to be eaten, right? The leaves are the solar panels. They don't want to be eaten. You know, the roots are the, the energy storage system. They don't want to be eaten. The plants want to be left alone, but they don't have claws. They don't have teeth. They don't have venom. So how do they defend themselves, right? They can't run away. So they defend themselves with chemistry. And so plants generate chemicals that make animals not want to eat them. Sometimes it's mechanical, like cactus has spikes on it. Um, but typically it's, it's, it's a chemical response. And some plants are really good at this, like death-capped mushrooms. And some plants are good at this, but it kind of backfires on them, like spices. You know, we like spices. We eat spices. Now, there are some plants that have very few of them at all. And these are ones typically that we have adapted to be like that. So for instance, if you had a grape or a carrot or an apple 2000 years ago in ancient Rome, it'd be a very different experience. It'd be much more tart and bitter and less sweet. We have selected the bitter uh, out and, and opted more for the sweet. Now, the good aspect of that is we've gotten rid of a lot of the anti-nutrients. The downside is we also, some of these anti-nutrients actually have medicinal value. And you want a degree of anti-nutrients in your diet of the right type because that's also how the plants are defending themselves against virus and fungus and parasites and bacteria and cancer. Yes, plants can have all of those diseases. So if you know which plants to go to, for instance, don't eat soy. Soy, you know, has protease inhibitors. We, we want to increase our proteolytic capacity, not decrease it. Soy damages the thyroid. That's a plant that we can just leave alone. Okay. But on the other hand, uh, or things that have lots of oxalic acid, challenge with oxalic acid is while there are some plants that always have oxalic acid, there's other plants that conditionally have oxalic acid. So if you go onto one study, you'll say, oh, wow, look, you know, kale doesn't have oxalic. Another says, yes, it does. Well, depends one on which variety of kale you tested and two, how it was grown, how stressed was the plant. Um, there are some things you just don't ever want to eat like spinach, right? Spinach is full of oxalic acid. And then it, so we had the, the Great Depression People weren't, couldn't afford good food. You know, kids were malnourished. And some well-meaning people said, let's make a media campaign to get them to beat spinach. Even though they don't like it, it's really nutritious. And out came the Popeye the Sailor cartoon, which was, you know, a media, a media push in a good way, right? It wasn't propaganda trying to hurt anything like we have now, right? What they didn't understand is spinach is loaded with oxalates and oxalic acid and causes crystallizations in the kidneys and kidney stones and joint pain and brain fog and so forth and so on. So there's lots of things you don't want to eat. As a general rule, I stay away from oxalates. So what about almonds? Because almonds are very, almond flour almonds are also high in oxalates, right? I grow almonds. I have almond trees in my, my orchard and I don't eat them. Yeah, because they're high in oxalic acid, right? Yeah, yeah. So I stay away from, you know, and, and you can go online and look up the things. A lot of things people think are really healthy, like chia seeds and, mm -hmm. you know. Goji berries. Almond. Yeah. Um, go yeah, there's a lot goji, of high oxalates. Goji berries is what goji I Goji berry, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, there's a lot of high oxalates, so I stay away from oxalates. So what are the what are the safer ones? What are the lower oxalate, lower plant toxin vegetables that you consume? Uh, I like zucchini. I hydroponically grow lettuce, and I do that. So my hydroponics are full of minerals. So I'm using lettuce as my trace supplement and my mineral supplement delivery mechanism. So I do that. I do the Kratky method. In terms of vegetables, you just need a couple of go-to that you like, right? What about arugula? Arugula is a good bitter for the liver, but it's not as high in oxalic acid. What are your thoughts on arugula? 
again, it's going to be, I, I personally love the way arugula tastes. It's going to be depend on the stress that that particular plant was grown under. All right. So my, the lettuce that I grow has a very non-stressed life and I keep it that way. So I, lo I keep my oxalates low. Um, I eat low glycemic, right? So the, um, I'll eat beans and barley because they're very low glycemic foods. What about the lectins in it though? And the beans? Um, if you soak them and sprout them, you're ah. minimizing. You're not getting rid of them. You're minimizing. Okay. Um, I stay away from histamine foods. Yeah, the ones you mentioned before. And you know, a fermented soy would be a combination of the wrong things because histamines plus the issues what you, you mentioned with soy. Right, so you're gaining the benefit of breaking down some of the anti-nutrients with the fermentation process at the cost of, of the histamine. Yeah. I also stay away from glutamate foods. Yeah, yeah, me which too. Which is why I don't cook my meat. I eat my meat raw. I grind it up. I freeze it to 40 below to kill the parasites. I grind it freeze it to 40 below. I get local grass-fed beef, ground, frozen to 40 below Celsius, kills the parasites, and then I eat it raw. Now, because I don't do uh, glutamates, and that's another huge thing that a lot of people don't realize is causing anxiety and nerve problems. Wait, 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 okay. That... You eat raw meat. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you don't cook your meat. You eat it raw. No. Yes. Interesting. Raw beef, raw chicken. You know, raw chicken. Yeah, I would say that maybe one out of 30 or 40 times raw chicken will give me the runs. I've never gotten it from raw beef. But you freeze it for 40 below Celsius, you said? Yeah. yeah. And then you grind it and eat it raw. Well, you, I grind it first. Or I, what I do is I'll buy ground chicken or Got ground it. beef. or Freeze it at 40 below. You need a special freezer for it. That'll kill all the parasites. And then I'll mix it with, you know, a little bit of salt, a little bit of oil, some spices from my, my garden. Okay. Uh, so would you do that if it was conventional chicken and beef or are you doing it only because it is um, higher quality, but, or it doesn't matter when you freeze it like that, it kills it either way. I don't think it would matter one way or the other. I think the conventional versus the organic versus grass is going to have to do with the cortisol levels uh, and the animal at death. Um, it's going to have to do with the pesticide residues and the glyphosates and things like that. So you're not heating it up because you're avoiding glutamate. Explain that. Explain why that's problematic. And yeah. So, so two things. Two things. One, you know, there are a lot of people that want to go and and uh, inject or or take peptides and all these fancy anti uh, you know anti aging supplements. Well, they're all in raw meat. Where that's where it's coming from, right? So there's a lot more nutrition in raw meat. There's a lot of very interesting proteins you can get. But the second is. Uh, some people react to, they'll, they'll get Chinese restaurant syndrome, right? They'll eat glutamate and they'll end up with a headache uh, or, or tightened jaw or something like that. I'm very glutamate re reactive. I'll get the shakes if I eat glutamate. And if you want to know if your glutamate is causing you problems, go eat a bag of pistachios and see what happens. If your symptoms get worse, it's glutamate. And the challenge is, you know, glutamate's the part that tastes good. So what happens is glutamate makes everything taste better. Now, there's glutamate in meat. When you cook the meat, the glutamate is released. It becomes, it's a free glutamate gets released and you get a lot more of it a lot more quickly. So, you know, for instance, if someone has blood sugar problems or wants to simply live a long time, they don't want to have a high glycemic load in their food. They want the sugar in their food to come in slowly, right? So I do that. Well, I would add to that, if you want your nervous system to last a long time, you want the glutamate in your food to come out slowly as well. When you cook the meat, the glutamate comes out more quickly. Now it tastes better, right? No doubt, because glutamate makes everything taste better. But when you're cooking meat, not only are you releasing the glutamate, but then you're also making glycation products, right? And the glycation products are what are so when, when sugar and protein uh, combine or sugar amino acids combine, they make these sticky things that clog the body up. Now, 30% of it comes from your, your diet and 70% you generate ex endogenously. But if you want to age slowly, you want to limit the amount of advanced glycation end products in your body. Now, when you cook meat, and also oil, or what people don't realize is you can get glycation products in oil. Olive oil has a huge amount of glycation in it because there's actually amino residues on oil. So when you cook your meat, you are not, you're releasing the glutamate. It tastes better, right? Because all those Amadori products where all the flavor is, but you're also generating a lot of glycation end products, which now you could also do that, that same proteolytic product that I'm going to be coming out with. It'll be an, an oral version of our Notoplex product. The same one that you could uh, consider with spike proteins, you can use that with glycation because glycation is a protein sugar combination. So you can break it down with, with proteases. 
but I also like to minimize the amount of glycation I'm taking in from my diet. Will that product also help with uh, the glutamate, breaking down glutamate? Uh, no, glutamate itself is already broken down. It's already an amino acid. It can't get any farther down. So what can we, is there anything we can take? Because I mean, I don't think everybody's going to go and eat raw meat like you. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm convinced that it could be problematic, but I'm not going to eat raw meat. However, I am inspired to, instead of getting my steak medium well, to get it like more uh, okay, medium Okay, so a couple rare. of things. Um, two things. One, um, marinate your meat first. Okay. Uh, and cook with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of acid. It's like some lemon juice or something. Like if you're doing chicken, you know, to put a little, assuming that you're not using a cast iron pan or an aluminum pan because you don't want the, the acids to release the metals, add a little bit of lemon juice to your, your cooking of chicken. I wouldn't add it to meat. I don't think it would necessarily, that's a good flavor combination. Marinate your meat, add some lemon juice to your chicken. The acids decrease the, the formation of glycation. So it's GABA and, glu and glutamate. It's GABA is the, the, the brakes, glutamate is the gas pedal. There are things you can do to block glutamate receptors and to stimulate GABA. I've got them. I don't find they work that well. I think the better thing for me is just to minimize glutamate. I'd never go back, but I'm very glutamate sensitive, right? If you're not glutamate sensitive, don't worry about it. But if you eat a bunch of pistachios and suddenly you have a panic attack, then you are glutamate. You may very well be glutamate sensitive. And again, it's like the histamines. It's like you have to decide. Maybe you just want to knock out the really big glutamate foods, right? You want to knock out the, the Parmesan cheese and the garlic and the pistachios, but add everything else in. Or you may have to drop down and say, wow, I can't, I can't do, you know, cheeses and I can't do highly cooked meats. I'm showing you where the, the spectrum on it, you can decide where you want to eat on that spectrum based on what feels good for you. For me, I'd never go back to eating cooked meat. This doesn't, I feel so much better with raw. Yeah, this is interesting. This is very interesting to me. I got, I'm taking a whole bunch of notes here. So you mentioned olive oil is probably not a good idea to cook with, even if it's a high quality. Oh, no, no. Even, even raw olive oil is going to have glute, is going to have um, AGE in it, advanced glycation in products. Butter's really? huge. Butter's got a lot. Safflower oil doesn't, but who wants the, the, uh, the, the vegetable oils? I don't want those. No. What about, what about beef tallow or duck fat? I don't know that I've seen um, measurements yet. I'd love to, but I haven't seen them. But I'm going to assume that it's going to have some of the same issues. So, you know, and I'm a huge fan of animal fats. I love eating it and I like keto. Now that I understand, okay, so should we, should we talk about what happens when you eat too much meat or too much oil? Yes, I do. I have one more follow-up question on the olive oil part. Um, what about the the fact that let's say it's organic, first harvest pressed, cold pressed, extra virgin olive oil that's loaded with oleocanthals and all these polyphenols and antioxidants? Would some of that cancel out the glycation in there? What what are what are your thoughts on olive oil in general? I don't think so. What my thoughts are is I don't pour enormous amounts of olive oil on my food anymore. I used to. I used to be a huge eating you know keto. A lot more. The more fat, the better. Now I am more moderates, right? I, I'm not going to give up olive oil. I'm not going to give up fats. I think they're great. But I see them now, rather than using them primarily as a fuel source, which I used to see the oils and fats, I see them as a nutrient delivery mechanism, right? I put them on my food to make sure that I'm absorbing the fat, um, soluble nutrients in that food. So I eat oil with every meal to make sure that the fat soluble elements are, are more easy to digest. But I'm I'm not using it as a main source of my fuel anymore. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm moving more towards the very low glycemic grains and beans as my power source. Hey, Keto Camper. What if there was an easy way to help detoxify your body, ease stress, unwind, and hey, even burn more calories? What I'm talking about is sauna usage. Now, there's a lot of studies that show the benefits of using a sauna, and it could be kind of complicated because they're expensive and typically you have to go to a facility to use a sauna. What I love about my sauna is that it's a blanket that I use at the comfort of my own home. I use the one from Bond Charge. And sauna blankets work by raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise so you burn calories while you're relaxing. And you could burn up to 600 calories in one session. Sweating also helps flush out toxins like heavy metals, from your body and elevating your heart rate while relaxing releases endorphins, which can leave you feeling euphoric. I feel like I just got a 60 minute massage when I get out of this thing. 
It works by using infrared light, which heats the body directly rather than the air around you like a traditional sauna. This means you get the same benefits at a lower heat. You also don't need to have your head in the heat like a traditional sauna. It's very easy to use. You can enjoy a session of 30 to 45 minutes while relaxing, reading, watching TV, or meditating. It's easy to clean. It's low EMF, especially compared to other brands out there. Simple and easy to get set up. And even more important, you, Keto Camper, are offered a nice coupon code for Bond Charges products, including their infrared sauna blanket. So head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout to get 15% off your order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code in the podcast notes. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. I had um, Dr. Stephen Gundry on my podcast and he is a huge advocate of olive oil. He says food only exists to put olive oil in your mouth. Like he's huge on it. And I love olive oil too, but it's something to consider. This is this is just an interesting conversation. Uh, but yeah, you, I have here in my notes about long-term carnivore, Spencer. Right, but again, again, it's, it's like, if you want to do a lot of oil, then just increase your your proteolytics. Then we we have to address what's going on with the lysosomes at some point about when you eat a lot of something, the lysosomes suffer. And we'll, we'll, we'll remind me, we'll circle back to that and we'll expl- talk about how to protect the lysosomes. Okay, so you were saying? I have here in my notes that when you eat carnivore long-term, mm. there is a putrefaction that takes place in fermentation for those uh, that eat meat long, too much meat and only meat long-term. What's going on there? Okay, so it's not eating too much meat. It's eating more meat than you can digest. So you want all the, you want everything you digest to finish its digestion in the small intestine, and then basically the large intestine is a, should be the fermentation of fiber, right? So the only thing that should get out of the small intestine is the indigestible parts that is then fermented by the bacteria to make all the good starch chain fatty acids. When you eat more than you can digest of anything, it gets into the large intestine, and then things like clostridia start eating it. Right, you don't want clostridia eating things in your small, in your large intestine, right? Because they're going to make things like cadaverine and putrescine, and all sorts of really toxic amines are going to screw the body up and make you smell bad. Mm. And you know, so that's the meat sweats. You're describing the meat sweats after going to a steakhouse. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I mean, you're <laughs> gonna you're gonna load up on toxic amines, or if you eat too many fats and then you can't digest, they'll get eaten by clostridia. And then what you're teaching the clostridia to do is to eat fat and protein. Well, we're made of fat protein too. I don't want to teach bacteria in my gut to eat the things that I am personally manufactured out of. Yeah, the membrane. Because those bacteria will translocate and start eating us, right? If they're eating sugars, well, my joints are made out of sugar. If they're eating fats, my nerves are coated in fat. If they're eating protein, my organs are made of protein. So you want to make sure that you eat the amount that you can digest, if you want to go and pick out at a steakhouse, great. Take a massive amount of proteolytics with your meal so that nothing gets past the small intestine. Because now all that stuff's now getting into the lysosomes and the lysosomes are shifting, remember, from recycling over to, to landfill. And then we've got all these problems that are associated when the body starts catastrophically accumulating garbage. So uh, I know it's individual. It's different for each person. And how much is too much, right? I know when somebody eats too much fat, they're typically going to get loose stools or diarrhea, that's typically a sign you're not breaking it down efficiently. What about the signs for too much protein, too much meat that you're not digesting it properly? You feel like it's sitting in the gut and you have like this heavy stomach. What are some things we should pay attention to with that? Right. So, I mean, on blood work, you want to look at your, um, you know, the end products of protein metabolism, how the kidneys are doing. But uh, you can also do a stool test that'll let you know. But so here are the quick ways to know if your gut's happy with you. Do you need toilet paper, right? A healthy animal does not need toilet paper. In the old days, if you went to go and buy a horse, you go and look at its teeth because the gums are seed. That tells you how old it is. And you lift up its tail and see if it soils itself. Because if it's soiling itself, if it needs toilet paper, it's a sick gut, right? You should not need toilet paper. Basically, after you go to the bathroom, you should wipe and there's nothing there. And the more, more toilet paper you need, the sicker the gut. That's the easiest test. Also, you know, it shouldn't have a really nasty smell. If you've got to open up the windows and warn people before they come into the bathroom after you've gone in there, 
you're making a lot of really nasty cadaverin and putrescine and other nasty things. You can check the pH of your stool, right? Just take a look at some pH paper with a range of say some six to, you know, six to eight or something. Because if you get one with a really big range, it won't give you the fine tuning. And check your pH. Your stool pH should be 6.8. If it starts going up, you're probably eating, you know, you're generating ammonia from too much protein. Um, if it's going down, you're shifted into hyperacidity. So you should have a, a stool with a 6.8 pH. It shouldn't smell terrible. It should pass easily. You know, you should be able to defecate faster than you urinate. Uh, and you shouldn't need toilet paper. And those are some things you could do without spending, you know, $500 on a stool test. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so for those watching on YouTube, uh, type in the comment section below, how many times on average are you wiping when you go and uh, eliminate? Is it zero? Is it three? Is it five? Uh, that's so fascinating. The goal is to be zero. And you're right. Healthy animals don't need to wipe. That is so fascinating. So now everybody's going to be paying attention to how many times they wipe. And you, that's probably bad news for a lot of people. I'm sure there are multiple swipers watching and listening right now. Well, you know, it's like when you hear that there's a hurricane coming and 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 then there's a run on toilet paper. I'm like, oh boy, we have a sick nation. If if you if you know, interesting, yeah. What happened at the beginning of COVID, right? That was the first thing that we that we couldn't get our hands on. There was a shortage of toilet paper. So one thing we make a product called Panaceum, which is full of prebiotics. These are the indigestible sugars and fibers that the gut wants to see, right? So, uh, and what I've been hearing, how do I say this? Uh, you may find that if you've got the right prebiotics in your diet, that goes a long way towards getting rid of your need for toilet paper. So, you know, when I looked at primitive human societies and what they were eating, seaweeds and tubers and connective tissue and honey and so forth and so on, I created a product that has all of the oligosaccharides that we would get if we were eating primitive, but I didn't want to spend two hours pounding and chewing raw tuber, chewing tubers. Uh, and you know, I feel eating. like that's something you would do, Spencer. Uh, it's just a time thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then eating insects and so forth. So I recreated that in a way that you didn't have to go out and do that. And so uh, that's something that I take. And you may very well find that after you've got your prebiotics dialed in properly, you don't need toilet paper. Um, a lot of the prebiotics that are out there, there's, you know, there's one or two or three of them in there. It's the cheap ones that are easily available, you know, the fructooligosaccharides or stuff. Not the you know, not the more expensive and rare ones. We've got eight living eight different oligosaccharides from across the plant and animal kingdom, um, recreating a primitive diet, and uh, that just does wonders for what goes on for the large intestine. Right, you got to feed that too, and the microbiome is just. I mean, that's hours of conversation about you know the microbiome is the best friend you've ever had in terms of it regulates every aspect of your body. You know, the microbiome was there before the brain, before the heart, before all of these things. Basically, you know, the worm was the original life form, you know, the first animal, basically, if you think about it. And the gut did everything. It made the neurotransmitters, it, the immune system was there. And then we kind of, we outsourced to different organs specialized, like, hey, I want, I, you know, they, they say the gut's your second brain. No, it was your first brain. It was here before your, your brain was. So, but then we outsourced and we made this, this appendage called the brain. So, the, and then we outsourced the immune system to the lymph glands and the spleen. And then we outsourced the neurocrine aspects to the, uh, the endocrine glands, but the microbiome used to and still can do all of those functions for you and regulates them. So, you know, we don't have the time to get into the microbiome, but that's an enormous factor in people's health. Is, and, and all the microbiome is asking for is the things that you can't digest. So it's just give, us, give me some prebiotics, give me some oligosaccharides. That's the food I want, the stuff you can't digest, and I will do all of these things for you. And if you need to keep wiping, your microbiome is not pleased with you at the moment. What about those who are doing carnivore long-term are not necessarily getting that. So what are, what's going on with them? Yeah, so um, the carnivore microbiome will shift. My suspicion is that uh, carnivore is fantastic short-term to get somebody who's cross-reacting to all of these chemicals in the plants and to get them off of that. But long-term, what I would say is what you want to do is Find the plants that you can eat that are beneficial, that, that have the medicinal qualities to it, that will balance your metabolism, um, and then slowly add them back in. So you have the widest degree of prebiotics for your, for your microbiome. And if you don't want to do that, if you're a hardcore carnivore, you're like, look, I just, I don't want to, I can't do it, won't do it, can't make me. Okay, um, then 
consider our Panaceum product, which has all the things you would get without the anti-nutrients in them. That if you were eating all the plants and getting all those things, then that's what you'd get. That's good to know. That's a remedy, remedylink.com for that. We'll put a link down below. Let's finish. Let's land the plane with uh, lysosomes. Tell me to circle back to that. So what can we do with lysosomes? Right. So, okay. So all the cells have these little organelles in them called lysosomes. And like I said, they're digesting fats and proteins and all the things. They're recycling them so that we can use them back for spare parts for making new things. Uh, they're also dealing with those things that get damaged. So for instance, when, when the body... Uh, if the body has metals in it, then proteins will start to misfold or sp uh, spike proteins can also cause misfolding proteins. And misfolding proteins or prions are uh, associated with most neurologic conditions. You know, Lou Gehrig's um, MS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, senility, these all have protein, you know, the, the plaque in there, it's misfolded proteins. What about Tourette's? Well, uh, I don't know. I, you know, I remember reading about that. Uh, Dang it. And I don't remember what Tourette's was associated with, but I think it might also be one of them. So we've got all these misfolded proteins that the lysosomes are. And again, if you upregulate things like heat shock proteins with saunas and cold, cold exposure, you increase your ability to deal with misfolded proteins. But at a certain point in time, the lysosome get them and then they can run out of their capacity to deal with them. So breaking down misfolded. Right, so we, what we want to do is we want to if you want to take care of the lysosomes, which you do if you want to age gracefully. You want to get rid of the things that are causing the misfolded proteins and the and the fats to um, hydrogenate, right? Crisco is basically they take cottonseed oil and they run it with nickel and hydrogen gases and they call it turn it into a solid. Well, we turn we make our own Crisco internally. The fats of our body turn into Crisco, and then the lysosomes have to deal with that. So, if we want to age gracefully, we want to be able to minimize the taking in of misfolded proteins and hydrogenated fats, but we also have to deal with the ones our bodies make. We also want to detox the metals that are causing the reaction internally, right? The metals in our body will cause hydrogenation and misfolded proteins. So we have to detox the metals, which we could talk about at some point in time. And then we want to clean out the lysosomes. Now you can do that to a degree with fasting, but there's some things you just can't get out even with fasting. And, and I'm saying this as someone who does a yearly 10 to 14 day water fast. There's some places you just can't get to. Now, there's a thing called a cyclodextrin, which are these tiny little sugar rings. There's alpha and beta, two different sizes. Cycle what? Cyclodextrins. Cyclodextrins. How do you spell that? C-Y-C-L-O-D-E-X-T-R-I-N. They're little sugar rings. They're fat-soluble on the inside. They're water-soluble on the outside. A, a bisfolded protein, typically, proteins fold in such a way they go through four folding stages. And on the fourth stage, the fat-soluble stuff is on the inside of the protein molecule and the water-soluble is on the outside so it can move around. When it misfolds, a fat-soluble spike sticks out, and now it's not water-soluble anymore, and it gets stuck in the tissue that it's hard to get rid of. The cyclodextrin puts the ring, the, the fat-soluble ring, on top of the spike coming out of the protein, rendering the entire protein now water-soluble again so you can eject it from the cell, and urinate it out. It also will solubilize or resolubilize up to 150,000 fold the hydrogenated fats that we either eat or are generating internally. And you want a beta cyclodextrin for the um, for the body and then uh, the, like the arteries and an alpha cyclodextrin slightly smaller for the one that's neurologic in the brain. We make a product called albidextrin that has both alpha and beta cyclodextrins. And what we now know is that cyclodextrins will clean out the lysosomes, that will regenerate the lysosomes. If you look at someone who's got fatty liver, um, and because the, their lysosomes are shot, and you give them cyclodextrins, their liver starts looking young again as all, the, as all those saturated fats start flushing out. It can be an intense few minutes the first time you take it if you've got a fatty liver, because it all starts to dump. But uh, other than feeling a little lightheaded, uh, and a little tired and 20 minutes later, you know, it, uh, the experience will usually be over. And uh, so it's, uh, it's an intense experience, but not an uncomfortable one. Uh, it's just strong for some people as they're flushing all this stuff out of their body. So cyclodextrins are an important part of clearing this stuff out. So if you've done a lot of fats, if you're, if you've been like a keto or carnivore person and you've been eating a lot more fats and proteins than you can digest or You've digested them, but now more than you can met metabolically use in your tissue, and they're loading up your lysosomes, cleaning the lysosomes out, 
um, with both proteolytics and cytolytics might be something to consider for your lifestyle. This is fascinating. Yeah, your website has a lot more info on this. So for those who want to dig a little bit deeper, it's remedylink.com. There's a lot of not just your products are on there to purchase, but also each product has an incredibly vast amount of research. Uh, you have videos for each product and different categories and what it does. So you did a really good job with that. So if you want to learn more and get the products, it's remedylink.com. Anywhere else they could go to learn more about what you're, what you're teaching? Uh, so we've got a video page on the website with about four hours of video that we add a new video every couple of months as I you know take on new projects. So um, you know, give that a, a look at and see if that that information is uh, useful to you. I see that. Yeah, it's great. Um, last quick question for you, Spencer, is on um, my favorite supplement in the world, which I call vitamin G, and I call it that because uh, it's vitamin gratitude and what that does to put your body in this anti-inflammatory state. So I want to ask you what you're grateful for today. Wow. Um, well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, speak to your audience and and hopefully help some people who might have gotten stalled in uh, healing their bodies or give them some ideas on ways in which the, the lifestyle they're using um, can be slightly modified so that they can age really gracefully. I'm grateful that World War III hasn't started. Uh, and hopefully, well, <laughs> hopefully it never starts. Hopefully it never starts. I'm grateful for the uh, German Shepherd puppy I have that gets me outside and running around. I'm grateful uh, for for the uh, two beehives that I just put on my garden because um, hardly got any cherries this year because we didn't have a lot of bees. Well, next yeah. year will be a different story now. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I love that, Spencer. Well, I'm grateful for you. You, uh, I said at the beginning, smartest guy that my audience probably never heard of. Now they've heard of you. And my audience is is seeing why I said that. I mean, you've just a wealth of information. There's so much in my notes that we didn't cover today. But if you want Spencer to come back and you're watching on YouTube, type in, yeah, round two with Spencer in the comment section. Or if you're listening on the podcast, leave a rating and review and say, bring him back Spencer. Uh, we'll bring him back. As you can tell, he's got a lot of information. And you can get his products over at remedylink.com. We'll put a link for that down below. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I, I enjoyed the conversation. I learned so much all the time. So thank you so much, Spencer. Oh, it was great speaking with you. Have a great day, Ben. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Spencer Feldman. If you want to learn more and get his products, he's got a whole line of incredible products I've been using for quite some time. Go to remedylink.com. We'll drop a link down below. If you want to watch the video version of today's interview, on our YouTube channel. I'm going to bring back Spencer for a round two in the future because there's so much that I still want to discuss with this guy. He's super brilliant. Please leave the show a rating and review. Share it with somebody you know. And thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.